Christine has a doctorate in soil biochemistry and uh, has been doing research in this and related areas for 30 years. Um, I always looked to Christine, well, it did initially, as uh, the phenomenal authority on native grasses and uh, was first infected by her passion about that uh, in Armadale when I first came to Australia. So it was a very exciting thing for me to find a kindred spirit and somebody who uh, was as passionate as I was about what she was into and, uh, and, and in a compatible way. So it was very exciting and we've maintained contact ever since. So it's a great privilege for me to have been asked to come here and uh, share some of this and, and be supportive with you. Um, Christine still lives in Armadale and uh, as you know formed the Carbon for Life Incorporated, a non-profit community group dedicated to raising awareness about the importance of soil carbon. And we collectively share the responsibility of making that happen. Thanks Stuart. I actually gave Stuart a bibliography this morning. Thank you. And just this minute I crossed it all out and said you can't say that, so he had to make all that up on the spot. It was all lies. Thanks Stuart. It's lovely. <laughs> lovely lies. My talk today is called Catching Carbon Storing Water and uh, over the last two days we've had lots of wonderful presentations on catching carbon and um, if you don't know by now that carbon makes the world go round, you never will, and photosynthesis and microbial activity are the drivers and don't it feel good? I think everyone in the room is feeling good, isn't it? It's positive what we're talking about carbon. It's not doom and gloom, the end of the world. There's a wonderful resource up there in the air that we can use uh, to make things better. We're talking about things getting better, not things getting worse. And we know now, from the talks that we've had, we know how to take excess carbon from the atmosphere and turn that into healthy soil. So we've been empowered. All those wonderful words that uh, Penny collected this morning on the paper, that was a great idea. We're, we're feeling enlightened and inspired. We have the wisdom, the knowledge and the power to do that, to take carbon from the air and, and turn it into healthy soil. And we're in the driver's seat of this um, amazing grassroots carbon revolution. But just to look on a, a little of the history of what has happened, Australian soils have lost up to 80% of their organic carbon They've lost up to 80% of their productivity unless they're propped up with synthetic uh, fertilisers and they've lost up to 80% of their moisture holding capacity over the last 200 years. Do you suspect there might be a connection there between those factors? The best place to store carbon is in your soil and the best place to store water is in freshwater aquifers. Not only is the water clean, cool and protected from evaporation, but it also provides perennial base flow to rivers and streams. Now we haven't talked about rivers over the last two days. We've talked a little bit about water and retention, water retention in soil, but there's only been very brief mention of rivers. So I just want to jump to a different page in this book for this talk. Well, let's talk about our rivers. Rivers exist only because of the catchments that feed them. They cannot be regarded as separate to those catchments. Now have a look at what's happening institutionally in our landscape at the moment. Look at what's happening. Uh, I think Gordon actually mentioned our, our CMAs. We've got our river health people and we've got our terrestrial people, often in different offices. Um, do they talk to each other? Not very often. Uh, for about 13 years now, I've been uh, talking about river health uh, and writing papers about river health in a whole of landscape framework, talking about taking a whole of landscape approach to river health and water quality. Unfortunately, what I have had to say has fallen largely on deaf ears, but maybe now that we're starting to run out of water, uh, some people might start to listen. And that's not meant as a negative comment. It's really been very, very difficult to get someone to, to view a river as being part of the landscape for some, some strange reason. 
So I just want to tell a little story that sort of um, paints a picture of what I mean about this whole of landscape. How many people have been to Fraser Island? Okay, so for those who, who haven't or don't know, Fraser Island is a little, the, basically a sand island off the coast of Queensland. And as most islands are completely surrounded by salt water and has salt-laden winds blowing across it all of the time. Interesting thing about Fraser Island is the incredible amount of fresh water that's there, the freshwater lakes. Those who've been there probably swum in those lakes. On the eastern side, there's 95 kilometres, I think it is, of beach that's sort of used as a highway. And when you drive along that beach, about every kilometre or so, you cross a freshwater stream running out to sea. And you have to keep slowing down to, to cross these streams because they've sort of eroded into the beach. It's very regular, all the way along the beach, 95 kilometres of beach, freshwater streams running out to sea. They put out something like 4 million litres a minute each, most of these little streams. The water is the freshest, cleanest water that you've ever seen in your life. And when you actually look at the streams, there's no evidence of the water level having changed up and down the, the stream bank. And I had a talk to one of the rangers there on Fraser Island and I said, what happens when you get a tropical downpour? Do these little streams flood because there's no, there's no debris? And, and it hadn't rained for months when I was there and the water level hadn't dropped. He said, no, they just keep discharging the same amount of water all the time, whether it rains or not. When we get a tropical downpour, the water, the water flow rate doesn't change in these little rivers. When it hasn't rained for months, they're still discharging the same amount of water. So obviously, this is what we call perennial base flow from the aquifers on Fraser Island. Now how are those aquifers being recharged? Well, as I said before, it's basically a sand island. When it rains, the water goes straight in and recharges the freshwater aquifer and the rivers run all of the time. Now how different is that to what happens on the mainland? When it rains, the water sheets off like as if it's hitting concrete. It carries our soil, our nutrients, every other thing that would be useful to have on the land dumps it into the river where it becomes a problem. So our assets um, become sedimentation. Our most important terrestrial assets become sedimentation and eutrophication problems in our rivers. Now if we look at Fraser Island again and we imagine covering it with a very thin sheet of concrete, so leaving the topography exactly the same, the rainfall and everything exactly the same, we would see what was happening on the, on the mainland. When it rains, there'd be a flood, and then when it stopped raining, we'd be a, there'd be a drought. And then it rained, there'd be a flood. So that's what we call boom-bust stream flow. And that is exactly what's been happening here. But it hasn't always been like that. When the first settlers came to Australia, they did not experience that sort of uh, stream flow that we have now. On the northern tablelands of New South Wales, where I come from, there's been quite a lot of research done there because we have a university close at hand and they've looked at the sediments in the lagoons and there's a 50-fold increase in sedimentation rate that coincides exactly with the date of European settlement around each of those lagoons. So you can say, you know, precisely it was 1846 or it was 1852 um, based on this massive increase in sedimentation and the, those sediments are about 7% organic carbon which is about 12% organic matter. And we don't have many soils up around 7% organic carbon now. And the other thing is that when it was first settled, the settlers did not have to clear trees. They just came in with huge mobs of sheep and overgrazed the ground cover. Lost the ground cover, lost the soil, then lost the moisture holding capacity. And then we got to this situation where our soils are like concrete. When it rains, the water runs off, we get a flood and takes more soil uh, into our little rivers. This is a photograph of Rocky River near Armidale, where I live, and it was called Rocky River because it had a rocky base with uh, large deep holes where people went swimming that were full of fish, and then like a little stream running over the rocks and then running into these large deep holes and then running into running again over the rocks. There are millions and billions of tonnes of sand in there, and we have three sand extraction companies that are probably the only sustainable industries in, in our area because as fast as they take the sand out of there, it fills up again. So we're still losing between 6 and 23 tonnes 
of soil for every tonne of wheat produced. And we worked out over dinner, I think, that for every slice of bread you eat, it's about 250 grams of soil lost for every slice of bread. Well, the thing about regenerative farming and rebuilding those topsoils and using the sorts of methods that have been talked about over the two days is you can actually build 250 grams of topsoil for every slice of bread. We can turn that round completely. And that, that equates to about, for a 1% increase in soil carbon, you'd be building about 250 grams of soil for every slice of bread produced. And we can't get that sediment in those creeks back up onto the, uh, the terrestrial landscape again. But we can certainly do something about uh, preventing any more. So what's happened to our catchments is that they've become drainments rather than catchment. And the water runs across the landscape uh, rather than infiltrating into the soil. And the other thing I just wanted to say about that photo was that the first European settlements and the traditional Aboriginal owners before them used to actually drink that water. <laughs> it's just like algal soup now. There's no way that we would drink an algal tea. And um, so what has happened since the time of European settlement really has nothing to do with things like riparian buffer zones, which is interesting because our sort of solution to that problem these days seems to be, well, we'll put a riparian buffer zone in there. If, if it's not a lack of riparian buffer zone that's caused the problem, I'm not really sure how putting one in can solve it. But, but it has everything to do with land management practices in the catchment. I just very quickly wanted to show this without dwelling on it. This is a photograph of Swan Hill on the Murray River taken in 1896. You'll notice that there weren't very many trees in that landscape. There's about three that I can see. Those trees hadn't been cleared. There's no stumps there. When uh, explorer Mitchell went through this area, he complained about uh, they couldn't find any wood to have a fire to cook their food or to keep warm. And this is another photo taken at Swan Hill in 2000. And you can see that there's a large increase in uh, trees, particularly eucalypt species. So that what we've seen is actually an invasion of uh, woody species into a lot of our previously grassland areas or savannah areas that were like open woody grasslands. So the biggest change since European settlement has not been to tree cover, the biggest change has been to ground cover and soils. And in a nutshell, we've overgrazed, burned, ploughed and sprayed our ground cover to death. Um, those of you who were here at dinner last night remember we sang Oh Lord, it's hard to be carbon. <laughs> um, they plough me and burn me and graze me and sometimes just throw me away. So it, we've done everything, every possible way that you can think of to destroy carbon in the soil. We've been very creative about that. And in the process, we've killed our soils. Dead soils can't function in the carbon cycle and dead soils can't function in the water cycle. And um, those two things are intrinsically linked. And so fortunately, the process for rebuilding soil carbon and the process for replenishing freshwater aquifers are exactly the same. We're basically going back the way that we came. So there's been quite a bit of talk about this already over the two days, about the fact that what we need is more rhizosphere, to have more rhizosphere, the rhizosphere being the, the area around the roots. To have more rhizosphere, you have to have more roots. Uh, to have more roots, you need to have more above ground plant material or small plant can't possibly have a large root system and um, and to transfer carbon from the atmosphere to the soil we need photosynthesis so we're basically talking about green plants all of this is related to green plants and um, um, they're, they're driving the whole ecosystem so that 90% of biological activity in soil occurs in that rhizosphere and uh, in conventional agriculture it's not so much the soil disturbance that destroys the soil structure, but the fact that when you plough or spray the ground, you destroy the green plants. We're sort of thinking, well, we're going with a plough and we end up with poor soil structure. But what happened when you went in with the plough was it killed the green plants. And it's the green plants that are maintaining your soil. Because the carbon compounds in soil that give the soil its structure are the glues and gums. The glues and gums that... Gums and... What did I used to say? Remember the glues and gums that make the crumbs yeah, they give the soil its structure. So when it's glued together in little particles, there's spaces between the, the, the lumps and that's where the air is and that's where the, the water is stored. And when the water is in there, stored in the topsoil, it can slowly uh, move down a small proportion of it down to, to replenish those freshwater aquifers. It's a really, really important process, the replenishment of freshwater aquifers. And we've been told for about 20 years 
but what we don't want is recharge. What we do want is recharge, as much of it as possible. So that uh, when we plough or spray the ground, we're actually destroying green plants, and they're, they're what's providing the energy in the form of carbon that's feeding the soil biota, and of course they're giving the soil its structure. And they're not long-lived, that's what I wanted to say. Those glues and gums in the soil are very short-lived, uh, the polysaccharides and things, but they need to be replaced all the time. It's not, you just don't get soil structure and then you've got it permanently. You have to keep on feeding the soil. It's a continual process, so you have to maintain biological activity. You have to have green plants. Onion crops with ryegrass growing between the rows. Uh, we've got coal size with this pasture cropping with uh, perennial grasslands with uh, cereal crops grown into them. We've got people growing mangoes with sugar drip and sudax and soil and crops growing between the mango trees and other people doing the same thing with tomatoes and it um, doesn't matter what aspect of agriculture we look at, uh, it's just really important to have green plants there for as much of the time as possible. And um, there's some research that's been done in the United States. Andre was talking this morning about the Rodale Institute and the levels of soil carbon that they've been measuring. They've also looked at what happens if you have uh, crops like back to back, they call it well, we probably call it continuous cropping here. We've always thought of crop plants as mining the soil. Actually, the crop puts energy into the soil. It's when you haven't got the crop there that you lose the carbon. So back-to-back -back cropping is actually builds carbon, whereas to have a crop there for half of the time and then to go into a bare fallow, you lose soil carbon. So it's often not the things that we thought were causing the losses that, that, that are. And perhaps... If we, there's been a lot of debate, how do we measure carbon in the soil? Um, it, you know, it's expensive, there's lots of different ways. There's been meetings for about two years in Australia with uh, the scientific community trying to work out how do you measure soil carbon. But we could have a very simple measure of something like soil water holding capacity, which is determined by the soil structure, which is determined by its carbon level and how that changes. So if you measure the soil now and it can, it can hold a certain amount of water, and then you measure it in 12 months' time or two years' time and the soil can actually hold more water. It's one of the easiest things that you can possibly measure in soil. If that soil water holding capacity has increased, you have increased your soil carbon content because you've improved the structure. And it's, a ver and it's something that nobody could argue about. And you would know, a farmer would know immediately, wow, my, my soil holds this much more water. I don't need to do a calculation from how much carbon's there and how much water it can hold. If you increase soil carbon by around 1%, for most soils they will hold about two buckets of water per square metre, more than they could have, would have been able to hold otherwise. So for every 1% increase in soil carbon equates to about two buckets of water. And thanks Liz for reminding me to say that because I think that's a, um, that 20 litres? It's a picture. Oh sorry, um, no they're nine litre buckets. <laughs> <laughs> 18 litres. <laughs> So if we could reward uh, farmers for water holding capacity, a very simple thing to do, it would make huge improvements to farm productivity, landscape health and river health and would have an enormous impact on the national water supplies in time, terms of their quality and quantity. And just one other thing I just wanted to say about water is that something that puzzled me for a long time and it always comes up in uh, discussions of salinity is that there is no such thing as a groundwater table I get really annoyed when people talk about groundwater tables and they're moving up and down. What we have in water, in um, soil, is a series of uh, lenses of water and also streams of water or a latticework of water. I mean, there is water in the soil, but it sort of moves in these little streams. Just even think of them as like bits of polypipe going here, there and everywhere in a crisscross sort of a fashion. I mean, if there was an underground water table like an underground sea, you can go and sink a bore anywhere and get water, but you know, you have to get a diviner in and sometimes, you know, there's water there, sometimes there isn't. I mean, it, it runs in very specific places. Um, but these, the water flows, or the streams, or, or whatever you want to call them, they can, the water can actually oscillate in those, and it can usually move in both directions. And water can go uphill um, if there's sufficient uh, pressure in a confined aquifer. So it does all kinds of amazing things under the ground. We've got this really simplistic view of this sort of water table that we see on all these diagrams. Was that we're given misinformation all the time about, about how water even moves in the soil. 
So it's interesting that a lot of what we've been, the information that we've been fed about things like dryland salinity are actually quite incorrect. And the soil water story, I guess, is a little bit like the soil biology story in that all the action is underground, hidden from view, out of sight and out of mind, uh, unfortunately. But it's really how we manage the above ground parts of that ecosystem that determines what happens underground. So it really all comes back to us. How, how to us with a Z. <laughs> Keep getting picked up on that. Apparently it's us. Um, it all depends on us. What happens in the soil depends on us and what, what happens to, uh, to recharging freshwater aquifers, to river flow and all of those things really depends on how we collectively manage our own little, little patch. So if we want a healthy river, you know, 20 kilometres away, 100 kilometres away, it really depends on all of us, uh, how we manage our ground cover. So that the soil carbon engine and the soil water engine uh, really determine the productivity of our farms, the health of our whole, whole catchment. But we need to have the correct information out there as, as to how to, to do those things. And ironically, that the health of the whole landscape and, and of, of all of the river systems depend, we're looking big picture, broad scale, but it actually depends on what happens to each raindrop as it hits the surface of the soil, whether that soil's covered, whether it hits a green leaf. But that's the sort of, we're going from that scale to every single raindrop is important, every single drop of water, every green leaf is important, and that's, that's up to you. So we're all, we're all important because we're out there managing those landscapes or giving people information as to how to manage those landscapes. And all of those little things add up to the, to the big things. What's that saying? Oak trees from little acorns grow or something like that. It's just uh, so important to get those little things right. And when a drop of water, a raindrop hits the ground, we want it to go down, not sideways and not back up as evaporation. Every raindrop that goes down will make a difference. Just one final photo. Um, there has been a little bit talk of pasture cropping. This is just a photo from uh, Cole Sizer's place at Golgong. Has been mentioned a couple of times over the last two days. But this is the uh, wheat crop is just in the process of being harvested so that you can see that um, on your left there, there is still the grain there and in front of you here on the right the, the crop's been stripped and underneath it there's eight to ten inches of very lush perennial grass growth which means that the stock can come in and begin grazing those perennial grasses straight away. So this is one example of what we call year-long green farming. We've got perennial, perennial plants there all of the time and, uh, and a very, you know, a commercial cash crop can be sown in on top of that. And the other thing about these kinds of places, when you go onto, onto Cole Sizer's place, for example, there's numerous other examples, different ways of doing this. Hamish has been talking to us about biodynamics. Uh, we've got people in horticulture, uh, people graziers using plant grazing. Is that you can feel it, the energy is different. You can feel it as soon as you walk on the place. Not only is the soil soft, you can't see any bare ground anywhere. I just hate it when I see bare ground uh, because you know it's losing carbon, you know the soil's dying, you know it's killing microbial activity in the soil. And so there's this really feeling of deep satisfaction that there's something basically very good happening here and it's the relationship between those people and those soils and those plants that they're managing. So when your soil talks, listen. And if you don't listen, it will shout. And if you still don't listen, it will show. Earth lying naked and barren, crying for help without words, calling so softly for carbon. There is no time now to bargain. Thank you. Lisa Castleman. Christine, thank you. I certainly get the message after the last couple of days about ground cover and particularly the year-long greenery and keeping what we have, all that type of thing. When I think about the droughts and dust storms and where we do lose soil, I wonder if there's a positive and a negative. Now, this is not a theory, it's only a thought, and I'd like you to think about it and comment if you would. Is it possible that some of the soil floating through the air is dust? and being carried from our grasslands to our cropping areas or wherever we've lost that soil from could be acting as carrier pigeons 
and if you like, taking some microbial diversity with it and depositing it, depositing it somewhere else. Gosh, that was a curly question, wasn't it? But why not leave the microbial activity where it is? The thing with microbes, I mean, Louis Pasteur said it's, it's not the biology or something like that. It's not the biology, it's the terrain. I mean, if our, if our human immune system, our ecosystem is run down, we're more likely to get infected. There's microbial life everywhere, all of the time, just waiting for an opportunity. So it's not so much a matter of having to inoculate soils. If you create the right environment for things to happen, they will. Microbes will proliferate and do all kinds of amazing things in a very short amount of time. If it's in, in a, a, an environment that's not conducive to that, they'll disappear. You create the right environment, they'll appear. So I don't think that you need to have dust storms in order to move microbes from one place to another. You create the right environment, they'll get there by themselves without having to take the soil particles. I think it's probably an expensive way of doing it. I'd like to think that the soil stayed where it was. And there's really no excuse for those kinds of dust storms. I mean, even in, in this year, I mean, 92% of New South Wales has been in drought, and I'm sure similar percentages for other, other states. I've seen photographs that have come from the, um, the Wimmera area of Western Victoria where people have had crops up this high this year that looked like good high-yielding crops. And then right through the fence, the neighbours had something that's got to about that high and shriveled, and he's not taking his harvester out of the head, this uh, out of the shed. This guy was a biological farmer. This guy was conventional, probably. If a little bit of urea didn't work, he'd throw on a bit more. Um, I mean, we've we've got all the evidence for those kinds of things happening. There's no excuse ever for bare ground and for soil moving. We can certainly inoculate soils with microbes in other ways, and they they will get there. That you can buy inoculants, but they will get there if you create the right environment. Uh, Christina, I just had a question about uh, obviously that picture of Coles's um, place is just amazing. It's obviously a pretty handy crop of wheat considering the season we've had. You're saying that this year, did you say? No, that's not. Oh, right. Start, no, right. Yeah. Um, and just your thoughts on pasture cropping? Is it feasible um, in more marginal country? Um, when you get out, you know, into the Ningen sort of areas where they're growing, you know, big acreages of the wheat, do you think it can work out, a uh, system like that can work out there? The more marginal the country, the more essential it is that you keep the ground covered. The thing is that if all of the ground cover has already been lost, as it has, Ningen's been in drought for, what, seven years or something, and so nobody actually has the ground cover to crop into, um, in which case you'd have to probably establish some kind of a warm season perennial grass like Bambatsi Panic or uh, something, purple pigeon grass or something like that to in order to have the ground cover in the first place. So if there's no ground cover there at all, although uh, Louisa gave some examples yesterday of, but you did have some thistles and things that you, you, you it's been really tough around and for a very, very long time and there's no, there's no ground cover anywhere. But the thing is that that's exactly the place, the sorts of places where it's very important to maintain it. So that when you're coming into dry time, you simply have, if, you, if you're grazing, you simply have to get livestock out of there. Because if you destroy that ground cover, you're just destroying your future pro production for the next 20 years or something. Rob Sutton here. I'm, I'm personally very interested in underground water recharge and, and how, how we go about that. But I just wondered if, if we encourage a, a major move towards focusing on underground water recharge, wouldn't that have significant short-term, mid-term effects on, on environmental flow? It's the only way to increase environmental flow and to have it perennial. Because at the moment we've just got this stop-start system with you know, rivers that were perennial, sometimes are now ephemeral, or sometimes basically got no water in them at all. They've been perennial sort of something like 100 years. And then, so that the, the really the river, the water coming into rivers should come as base flow, should come from the aquifers. It should not run across the top of the ground and bring all the rubbish with it, dump it in the river. Again, as I said, if you, if you put a thing layer of concrete onto Fraser Island, it wouldn't have all those streams. They'd all disappear. You'd have a flood when it rained and then there'd be no water. I mean, it's a classic living example. Anyone who hasn't seen it, I reckon, should go there. It, you can see straight away, if the water goes into the soil, replenishes the aquifers, the aquifers have got all those streams just running day and night, whether it rains or not. It, you have to go and see it. It'll change your view completely of how, how rivers function. It's worth a trip. To, don't know whether you can get it as a tax dodge. Junk it from your department or something, but it's, it's worth a trip to go and have a look. <laughs> I've got to go to Fraser Island to check out the, how the 
how water should move in the landscape. It's water exporting. Yeah, water exporting. And then someone will say, all that fresh water shouldn't be running out to sea, we should stop it. Waste, all wasted water. We could. We'll turn it round, we'll divert it back to the mainland. That's it. I'll sell it to Sydney. Now, there's a thought. We could put a big pipeline in from Fraser Island and we could, uh, we could have boats waiting out off Fraser Island, big container ships, and fill them up with water and sell, sell it to Sydney. Yeah, that's right. I'll sell it to Coca-Cola. Mm, yeah, that we'll value add it, if, if that's value. Be a bit dubious about the value. I'm just wondering what sort of soil creation rates are you sort of getting? What can we do? The example I've just shown of Cole Fires' place, he's increased soil carbon by 2%, organic carbon, um, which equates to about 30 tonnes per hectare. Uh, depends like how, to what depth this could... Over what sort of time? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I think those two measurements were about five years apart. Mm. But so we don't know exactly where the change occurred. We don't know whether it stayed at 2% uh, for four years and then in the fifth year jumped up to four or whether it sort of happened gradually over the time. Unfortunately, you just had one measurement and then another one. So he went from what to what? Two four. Organic carbon? Yeah. yeah. Christine, could I um, get some information about um, carbon uh, sequestration under forest as compared to um, grass systems? Well, it depends where the forest is. In um, There have been studies done throughout Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, and it depends a lot on the, on the soil environment. But in most of those environments, as I mentioned briefly yesterday, uh, and it depends again on what kind of soil carbon level you started with. But in situations where you've gone um, from what would be an agricultural situation to a plantation situation, you generally lose soil carbon for about the first 10 to 15 years. And sometimes it can take up to 40 years for it actually to rebuild. And the reason that soil carbon is lost is that when the trees are put in, the ground covers usually kept, the ground is kept bare so that there's no competition with the young trees so that all the grasses are kept out of that ecosystem and go down to some of the blue gum plantations in, um, in Western Victoria and whatever, after it's rained, it's just like a mudslide coming down these hills and there's just this red mud everywhere and all the creeks and rivers are full of it. And it's all just come down off that. So environmentally, they've, they've been a disaster from that perspective in terms of erosion. Um, and also the tree itself does take some carbon from the soil as well. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not all fixed through photosynthesis. After about 40 years, 30 to 40 years, depending on where they are, generally levels out. But that's about the plantation turnaround time. Usually they're harvested after 30 or 40 years, so they missed start again and deplete it. But that's not always true. That, that generalisation doesn't work in the plantations in southeast Queensland. I'm not sure why, but in that environment they have got increases in soil carbon under tree plantations, whether it's the species of tree that they've put in, or particularly if they're non-eucalypt species, you generally get an increase in soil carbon. So it's it's the eucalypt and particularly the blue gum plantations that seem to have caused the losses. But again, with your woody weed invasion of Western New South Wales, which is probably what you're referring to. The whole uh, approach with uh, carbon credits has been very plantation. Yeah, a lot of it is because of the ground cover management, the fact that there haven't been grasses under the trees. So if it was agroforestry, you had alley planting, uh, or if you were just putting tree lots in on farms. I mean, Gordon, for example, has wonderful tree lots on his farm with beautiful grasses. I, I get, Gordon takes me and says, come and have a look at the trees, and I'm going, oh, wow, look at these fabulous grasses, um, because they're just magnificent in all around the trees. So there's no way he's going to be losing soil carbon in that situation, building soil carbon. So it really depends on, you know, what kind of management, the management that affects it. Christine, thank you for your presentation. Um, as a long-time wheat farmer, it intrigues me about this pasture cropping. And where we are in Colorinabri, when the pasture cropping, the weeds compete for them, fail or moisture for the wheat, unless, you know, and have a non-profitable yield on the wheat. Well, Andre Loy in his presentation this morning talked about the fact any green plants that you have are photosynthesising, taking carbon from the air, transferring it through the plant and exuding it through the roots and building the soil. And when you build the soil, you're going to have higher nutrient availabilities, higher water holding capacity, 
better structure, better aeration, everything, actually building the soil environment so that you're better off having the weeds there than having nothing there. Green is good, doesn't matter what kind of green it is. So the only issue that you then have to decide is what you're going to do with that green material before you plant your crop. You're going to come in and slash it or graze it or how are you going to manage it just to, to uh, give the crop a competitive advantage. If you keep the soil bare, you are always going to lose soil carbon, you are always going to destroy soil structure, you are always going to have lower soil moisture holding capacity over time and lower nutrient availability over time so that it cannot possibly be productive in the long term. Whenever you have bare ground, you're destroying everything in your soil. But I just wonder, is anyone uh, doing anything with, you know, seeding with uh, and, and incorporating, uh, you know, living organisms at, uh, at the same time, along with perhaps some nutrients or... Absolutely, know? yeah. That's where biological farming is going very strongly these days. Inoculating seed with microbial preparations, also putting carbon sources in with the seed, so that, uh, yeah, carbon sources and microbes uh, in, as part of the seeding program is definitely the way of the future for, for broadacre cropping. And Stuart just said there's been papers since the 1960s on seed factorisation. You'd have to be careful how you said that. Uh, Christine, this might be a bit of, bit, of a, um, bit, bit of a heresy, but just thinking in terms of spreading the gospel, uh, a title like Managing the Carbon Cycle to a lot of people might be a bit obscure. I was just wondering if it's worth considering something like, you know, from greenhouse gas to good health or something like that, which, you know, especially since it's all now so much more politically fashionable, uh, may give more message and more motivation for people to stick their heads in the door. Oh, thanks, Alex. At every single carbon cycle forum, I've had someone tell me that I shouldn't have called it managing the carbon cycle. I actually think managing the carbon cycle is the perfect name for it. I'm sorry, I have to disagree with you there because it's all about managing, which means it's all about everybody that's here. And we are talking about the whole carbon cycle, including water and all of those things that don't come into greenhouse gases. So it's, we're talking, when we're talking about managing the carbon cycle, we're talking about everything that you can think of because it all comes back to carbon. It's a greenhouse gas is a one part of it. It just happens to be that because of global change and uh, um, what's it called, global warming and climate change, that there's now been a focus on carbon, which has helped us to address these issues about soil health and water quality. They're the important things. And as Andre said this morning, whether or not you're rewarded through a carbon credit system for increasing carbon in the soil. That's a bonus for doing it, but the point is you have to do it. For, for the future productivity of our farms, for our quality of life, uh, for the health of rural communities and all of those things, these are important things that we have to do. Global warming and climate change has probably come along at the right time to make us wake up and realise we have to do something about our soils. So I would stick with managing the carbon cycle. That's my personal preference. If I was going to have any more, that was Louisa. Thank you very much for reminding me. Uh, Christine, in your uh, talk, you spoke about problems in uh, with with testing uh, uh, testing uh, soil organic carbon levels. Could you just explain, uh, tell us a little bit more about that, please? Well, I don't really see any problems with that. But the scientific community sees problems with that, and it's been discussed at great length for a long time. But you know, with more passion than usual for the last two years. There was a meeting on the 6th of November, I think, in Sydney that where they reckoned that they had actually kind of sorted it. And I happened to be sitting next to the one of the main players on the plane home, which I thought was, I thank the universe for putting me next to that guy so we could have a bit of a chat. And uh, he said that he thought they had now come up with the answer. And when we talked about it, he told me in great depth about what they're doing in Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, all these different places had all these different protocols. It sounded really complicated to me and I said, um, well, how much does the carbon vary over the year depending on the weather, you know, the temperature and all that sorts of things, which is a very obvious question to ask because we know that it does. And he said, I don't know, we haven't thought about that. And I thought, well, okay, well, I won't worry about what they're doing. If, if I were doing it myself, I would just measure total carbon. I'd just do like a, a LECO total carbon. It's easy, it's cheap, costs about $3 a sample to do. Uh, you have your defined measurement areas like you do with any kind of a soil test and just come back keep doing it the same place uh, under the same conditions. If you do it in April this year, you do it in April next year. 
whatever. I, I could make it very simple. I don't know whether I'd be right or not. But the thing is that there are lots of different carbon pools and carbon moves between all those different pools in the soil. And, and the, I'm, I'm not, you know, putting the scientific community into a, um, into a little box because I'm a scientist myself. But they tend to make simple issues very complex and that's a generalisation. If total soil carbon is increasing, then all the different sorts of carbon in the soil are increasing and the soil and the carbon is transforming from the simple like particulate organic matter and labile forms of carbon into more complex stable like humus and those sorts of highly evolved carbon molecules. If the carbon level is increasing all the time, it is also evolving to more stable forms. It can't not be. It can't be increasing all the time and not also and not also evolving to more stable forms. So if it's getting better all the time, that's all we need to know, as far as I'm concerned. I could be wrong. Thanks, Christine. Uh, particularly uh, in pointing out the relationship between carbon uh, sequestration and water quality, that's really uh, very helpful. Uh, initially, I thought in a more simplistic way of thinking that Coca-Cola was actually doing a great service by putting carbon in water, but then I thought a little bit uh, later what happens when you burp. Uh, but my question is, uh, you also said there's uh, cheaper ways of trying to assess the relationship of, of sequestrating carbon to other parameters you can measure, and you quoted if for 1% increase in organic matter... Organic carbon. One organic carbon. Organic carbon. Uh, you get 18 litres of water holding capacity, but what volume uh, of soil are you measuring? Oh, in that's in a square metre, it's 10 centimetres deep. Thank you. So one metre by one metre. Okay. It actually depends on the bulk density of the soil. Uh, just because we have to be scientifically correct about this. So if it was, if the bulk density was one, which is very low for soil, and most soils aren't, it'd be 10 litres. If it was 1.2, it'd be 12 litres, and so on. Yeah. So for it to be 18 litres of the bulk density of the soil, it'd have to be 1.8. I mean, I just need to, if, if you want to be precise, I'd have to say that. Depends on the bulk density of the soil. That's the increase that you would get over and above. The, the water holding capacity of soil depends on lots of things, including the soil texture. But given that it's already holding, can hold a certain amount, we just increase the soil carbon content by 1%. It can then hold that extra amount. So it's over and above what it can already hold. Like soil can already hold more than two buckets of water per square metre. Yeah, so um, we're, we're saying that um, it's just the increase in carbon. It's just the additional water holding capacity on top of what it can already hold. Do you see that as an ongoing commitment, fertilisers, or will the, will a rotational grazing system become a kind of self-sufficient, you with the mulching and the manure, and um, on, on a fairly large scale, will that become a self-sustaining system, or do we always have to add some sort of seaweed or fish meal or um, pasture crop to, for soil health? I mean, if, if, yeah, I just wonder if you have an opinion on that. Well, the ecosystem when we got here wasn't being fertilised and we had deep, well-mulched, you know, soils high in organic carbon and very luxurious grasslands. But we've now, we're basically back to the concrete situation now. Dead soil, uh, no soil structure, virtually nothing will grow in it. I mean, even in some areas where they've had, they have had rain this year, even the weeds, like, you know, the mustard weeds grown about this high, when a few years ago it would have grown this high. So that the, the longer the soil goes without the carbon, the harder it is to kick start. So that if you were actually trying to, to produce something, yes, you would be looking at, at nourishing that soil in some way, not with a harsh chemical fertiliser, but we've got, you know, the biological agriculture, as it's called, which is just a huge science all on its own. Uh, you have someone sitting behind you there who could tell you much more than I could about uh, seaweed and kelp and those kinds of products for nourishing the soil. Rhonda Daly could tell you there's a brochure down the back about... Um, living soils and the biological products that you can use. So if, if the soil is totally dead, uh, yes, you're going to have to feed it and look after it. But the idea is to get as many green plants as you possibly can into that system to maintain it, because it can maintain itself. Yeah, uh, Christine, uh, Mandy Stevens in Southern Rivers CMA. From a policy-making perspective and a funding body perspective, I'm very interested in trying to find um, a simple measurement for, for paying farmers for stewardship of the land, basically. So managing carbon and paying them for carbon seems to be a, a profound simplicity. Thank you for the, for the profound simplicities that you're bringing to this whole debate. Uh, 
can, can we be assured that there's an absolute direct link between water holding capacity and carbon? And also the investors who are, are wanting to pay also want to know that in the longer term that they won't have to pay in the longer term that somebody else will pick up that tab, i.e. carbon credits or someone else down the, down the track. And the farmer's profitability, of course. Um, has there, have there been studies between an absolute direct link? I mean, we need to always have the science behind any of the decisions we're making. That's my first quick question. The other one is, is serrated tussock situations on non-arable country. How do you handle that sort of... I mean, it's obviously the soil crying out for a non-edible carbon replacement, but what do we do in those sorts of grazing situations? OK, well, unfortunately, we've got to the end of question time. They're great questions, but we're running right behind. So maybe we could talk about that later because they're, they're actually very long-involved answers to those questions. But I think there are very simple ways of rewarding landholders, but they, they will be rewarded anyway for what they do. Whether or not they receive a financial incentive to do it, they'll be rewarded in terms of productivity. Serrated tusk is absolutely a land management issue. It comes in because you've got bare ground and the more you spray it, the more you'll get. And there's no doubt about that. And that goes for any weed that's similar. It's what, what we call a perennial, uh, reproductively efficient grassy weed. It produces millions of seeds per plant. You create bare ground by spraying it out, you'll get millions of plants, there's no doubt about that. So that's a, that's a land management issue that I could talk to you about. It's a grazing management issue. And, and it's um, the one about rewarding farm landholders is really something we could spend hours talking about. What kind of, that's the sort of thing that where this debate needs to go, really, is, is I can't give you a two-word answer to that, I'm sorry. But we need to talk about that. But we all need to talk about that in depth. Well, just a quick one, Christine. Yeah. Nick, within a week, I have to give a, uh, a talk to elders agronomists. What will I tell them? <laughs> find another job. There's a really good school that you can go to in, um, in the United States called the School of Unknowing. In other words, you unlearn everything that you've learned and you start again. You might suggest they go there. I also got Bogan Catchment Management Authority, Victoria. Uh, great uh, session, Christine. One of the things I want to, I guess, just enhance, I mean, in Victoria, we've gone crazy on trees and we've been planting trees like crazy for the last 10 to 15 years. Every recharge area we get, we plant out to trees. About 15 years ago, there was a, a site that was very badly tunnel eroded and we actually ripped and cross-ripped that site and planted it into trees. 15 years later, the tunnel erosion is just as bad and uh, there's no, no uh, ground cover at all. So uh, what we really need to do, I guess, is, is take out a lot of the trees and put some grasses and so forth back on the recharge site. But one of the things we now get into in Victoria is that everything needs to be native grasses. And you know how harsh some of the soils are down there. I certainly don't believe we have the native grasses in Victoria to actually be able to put on the uh, recharge sites and get good uh, ground cover. Uh, most of what I believe, most of the native grasses now, the good grasses are extinct and we need to look at good uh, fibrous perennial pastures. Um, if you want to add to that, but that's just the way I feel about in Victoria, that we we either going all trees or we're going for native grasses, which I don't believe are satisfactory for what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, thanks Barry for that comment. I think it's interesting that people have recognised that they need to get the grasses back and so that they've then made it really difficult for themselves by saying, well, we had native grasses before, so therefore we'll put native grasses back. It makes it really, really difficult. What we're talking about is ecosystem function and very simple ways of doing it. Cheapest way to do that is with a non-native Warm season perennial grasses, I suggested Bambatsi Panic or Purple Pigeon grass. It's cheap, the seeds there. People in Western Australia, for example, on soils that are almost pure sand have had amazing success with establishing these things. Really low rainfall areas, the most difficult conditions that you could think of. If you can do it in Western Australia, you can certainly do it in Victoria. You need to get the green plants there and you need to get them there straight away. And it doesn't really matter what they are. If they're not native, it doesn't matter. Because if you stop that tunnel erosion, stop that soil loss, start getting carbon from the atmosphere, build your soil structure, build your biological activity in the soil, eventually you'll get back to the kind of ecosystem where native grasses could possibly grow. But you can't start with the original climax community that was there and just put it into a totally dead, deficient, non, 
well, a dysfunctional soil ecosystem and expect that it's like taking a rainforest tree and sticking it in the desert and expecting it to grow. We have to build that whole ecosystem back from the base. And whatever will grow there and whatever's the cheapest and the quickest and the most convenient thing to do is what we need to do. But you need to get ground cover in there because that soil will keep on eroding unless it's covered. Christine, could I um, get some information about um, carbon uh, sequestration under forest as compared to um, grass systems? Well, it depends where the forest is. In um, There have been studies done throughout Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, and it depends a lot on the, on the soil environment. But in most of those environments, as I mentioned briefly yesterday, uh, and it depends again on what kind of soil carbon level you started with, but in situations where you've gone um, from what would be an agricultural situation to a plantation situation, you generally lose soil carbon for about the first 10 to 15 years, and sometimes it can take up to 40 years for it actually to rebuild. And the reason that soil carbon is lost is that when the trees are put in, the ground cover's usually kept, the ground is kept bare, so that there's no competition with the young trees, so that all the grasses are kept out of that ecosystem and go down to some of the bluegum plantations in, um, in Western Victoria and whatever, after it's rained, it's just like a mudslide coming down these hills and there's just this red mud everywhere and all the creeks and rivers are full of it. And it's all just come down off that. So environmentally, they've, they've been a disaster from that perspective in terms of erosion. Um, and also the tree itself does take some carbon from the soil as well. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not all fixed through photosynthesis. After about 40 years, 30 to 40 years, depending on where they are, generally levels out. But that's about the plantation turnaround time. Usually they're harvested after 30 or 40 years, so they can start again and deplete it. But uh, that's not always true. That, that generalisation doesn't work in the plantations in southeast Queensland. I'm not sure why. But in that environment, they have got increases in soil carbon under tree plantations, whether it's the species of tree that they've put in, or particularly if they're non-eucalypt species, you generally get an increase in soil carbon. So it's, it's the eucalypt and particularly the blue gum plantations that seem to have caused the losses. But again, with your woody weed invasion of Western New South Wales, which is probably what you're referring to. The whole uh, approach with uh Carbon credits has been merely plantations. Yeah, a lot of it is because of the ground cover management, the fact that there haven't been grasses under the trees. So if it was agroforestry, you had alley planting, uh, or if you were just putting tree lots in on farms. I mean, Gordon, for example, has wonderful tree lots on his farm with beautiful grasses. I, I get, Gordon takes me and says, come and have a look at the trees, and I'm going, oh, wow, look at these fabulous grasses, um, because they're just magnificent all around the trees. So there's no way he's going to be losing soil carbon in that situation, building soil carbon. So it really depends on, you know, what kind of management. That was a long answer, sorry. <laughs>